You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 140, The Soviet Union, Part 10, The Red Army. This week, a big thank you goes out to Carl, Fitter, Robert, and Martin for becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Many of the challenges faced by the Red Army in 1941 would be blamed on the purges and the effects that those purges had on the overall performance of the Red Army. In some ways, this was true. The purges resulted in thousands of officers being removed from the army, many of them to be executed. The purges would also have particular effects on the more radical-thinking officers, even if that radical thinking was limited to military strategy. The officers that were no longer in the ranks of the Red Army were also those that had built the Red Army up to what it was in 1937, and the processes and the people and the equipment and and everything else that, that they had built, you know, had to be handed off to other people. So while the purges did have an effect, it is important to remember that there were many other challenges that were facing the Red Army during this time period as well. The first was one of size. Throughout the last years of the 1930s, the Red Army was expanding rapidly. This placed extreme pressures on the existing leadership structures of the army, and it put added emphasis on the ability of the Red Army to find and train new generations of officers to staff the ballooning numbers of units. This was a problem, and it would prove to be almost impossible to create enough officers to meet demand. There were also challenges just trying to train up the soldiers, a problem shared by every army that was trying to rapidly expand during this period. Finally, the Red Army would also have some challenges adapting to new technology, again a very common theme when looking at the militaries of the 1930s. All of these challenges would result in an army that was large, but had trouble translating those numbers into battlefield results. You would see this clearly, you know, in focus during the Winter War with Finland, and then it would also lead to disaster during Barbarossa in 1941. This episode will look at the evolution of the Red Army during the 1930s, and how it planned to fight a war with other nations in Europe, and what the challenges were for the army as this war moved ever closer during 1939. Just like many other nations during the 1920s, the Red Army, fresh from the victories of the Civil War, were focused on one thing, making sure that the First World War did not happen again. And by that I mean, they did not want to fight another war like what had happened during the First World War, with its stagnant battlefields and sort of war of attrition-like feeling. They wanted to ensure that the battlefield was controlled by mobility and maneuver, similar to how the Civil War and the Polish-Soviet War had been fought. While planning for a future war that was hopefully different, there were economic realities in place as well. And so at the end of the Civil War, the Red Army was demobilized and reduced from about 5.5 million men down to just over 550,000. But even in this drastic reduction of strength, there was a focus on maintaining some level of mobility, 
because it was the cavalry divisions that were heavily favored in retention. Officers would then spend the next two decades debating how best to meet the goals of the army and how best to plan and prepare for a conflict. The planning would also be tied into Marxist theory, much like the Soviet government, with Mikhail Frunz saying, quote, The character of the military doctrine of a given state is determined by the political line of the social class that stands at the head of it. One of the fundamental theoretical tasks of those concerned with military affairs is the study of the peculiar nature of the building of the Red Army and its combat methods. End quote. And then to quote Tukhachevsky here, The hopelessness of the situation of capitalist states lies in the way the growth of production resources inevitably pushes their armies in the direction of growth, while the industrial base required by this growth of the armed forces comes apart at the seams, mass armies being fertile fields for the transformation of imperialist war into civil war. End quote. So you can see how they're kind of mixing in the, the political philosophies of the Soviet Union into their military planning. One of the core foundations of the Soviet military planning during this period was the rejection of the kind of a battle of annihilation that many armies before the First World War had pursued. And like the one that, for example, the Japanese were still planning to kind of have in the Pacific. Instead, Soviet military theorists believed that war would be a long slog involving a succession of operations that would take place over wide geographic areas while consuming men and material. This belief caused a focus on a type of planning that Soviets called operational planning, with an operation defined as, quote, a totality of battles, strikes, and maneuvers of various types of forces united by mutual aims, missions, location, and timing, conducted simultaneously or successively according to a single concept or plan aimed at accomplishing missions in a theater of military operations, on a strategic direction or operational directions in a predetermined period of time, end quote. Or, as will be published in 1927 by a faculty member of the Foons Academy, quote, tactics make steps from which operational leaps are assembled, strategy points out the path. This operational level of thinking would become an important feature of interwar Soviet planning, as it seemed to solve a problem that had been growing in modern war over the previous decades. Tactics and strategy were fine, but they were limiting in their own ways. And as the battlefields of the 20th century became more and more complicated, it seemed that there needed to be a level of thinking in between the two to manage the massive and complex battles that were developing, which involved many more moving pieces than previous conflicts. Thinking about war from an operational view allowed the Red Army to focus on planning for a succession of operations that were designed to sort of slowly destroy the enemy's ability to fight. But this thinking would also be constrained by the resources of the Red Army, which in the 1920s meant that all planning had to be based mostly on infantry, because that's what the Red Army had. This limited the rate of advance of any attack, and also limited its duration. Men get tired. This meant that operational-level attacks might be planned for a length of front around 350 kilometers, with the goal being to advance just 5 kilometers per day for a week. Faster would be better, though which is one of the major reasons that the Red Army leaders pushed so persistently for Soviet economic resources to be dedicated to the expansion of armor production. This operational thinking was taken a step further by Marshal Tukhachevsky, with his proposals around deep battle and deep operations. These two ideas would occupy most of the thinking and planning for war by the Red Army during the 1930s. Here is David Glantz defining deep battle. It, quote, 
consisted of simultaneous attacks on the enemy defense with all means of attack to the entire depth of the defense, a penetration of the tactical defense zone on selected directions and subsequent decisive development of tactical success into operational success by means of introducing into battle an echelon to develop success and the landing of air assaults to achieve rapidly in the desired aims. End quote. Tukhachevsky would be one of the important theorists behind deep battle, but he would have help, particularly from Victor. Tukhachevsky would be one of the important theorists behind deep battle, but he would have help, particularly from Viktor Triandifilov. In some ways, Triandifilov would re- should receive maybe more credit than Tukhachevsky, because it was Triandifilov who would take the big ideas of deep battle and turn them into a at least some kind of realistic framework. The core of the idea was to not just attack the enemy's front line, but instead to destroy their entire set of defenses simultaneously, which would paralyze the enemy on a wide front, preventing reinforcements from being deployed to stop the attack. Within the confines of the early 1930s, and possessing mainly infantry, the goal was to have two different groups of forces. The first would be thrown against a wide front of the enemy to break through their initial defenses with the assistance of artillery, air power, and airborne assault. Then a second wave, the shock army, would be sent through the breach to deepen it and carry forward the offensive. The goal was to make the shock army a mobile force with as many tanks as possible. Here's Tukhachevsky again. Quote, modern means of neutralization employed on a mass scale put within reach the possibility of simultaneous attacks and destruction of the entire depth of enemy's tactical defense. These resources, above all tanks, make it possible. End quote. He considered this to be the most critical point of the entire concept, continuing, quote, the side which is not poised to destroy enemy air bases, to disrupt his railway system, to mobilize and concentrate strong airborne forces, and to act swiftly with mechanized formations, will not be able to achieve the requisite strategic concentration and will lose the principal theaters of operations, End quote. Once the shock army was committed, it would dictate the path of the advance, generally in some kind of pre-planned direction in pursuit of a specific goal. Of critical importance was the fact that once the offensive began, it had to continue as far and as long as possible. To quote Tukhachevsky, quote, A pause faces the attacker with the need to fight a new battle, in which the chances of success are more or less equal for both sides, just as they are in the initial operation. On the face of it, these theories and ideas were not that much different than what had been present during many First World War offensives, for example. But the major difference was one of size. Instead of, you know, attacking on a relatively small area of the front, the Red Army was planning to attack along hundreds of kilometers at the same time, with the goal of advancing infantry at least 15 kilometers during the operation. These were massive efforts, and they presented a whole host of problems. The first problem, and one that would be largely ignored during the 1930s, or at least the early 1930s, was just getting the resources together, the men, the vehicles, the equipment, all in one place and ready to attack. The second problem would be given much more thought, and it was around the problem of command and control in such a large operation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To try and turn Chukachevsky's and Triandafilov's ideas into reality, the Fruns Academy would run multiple map exercises in the first years of the 1930s. During these years, the focus of most of this work was on trying to find a way to transition an attack from a tactical penetration, maybe of a few kilometers, into something much larger, aiming to achieve a penetration up to 60 kilometers in depth. There were also suggestions that 60 kilometers also was not enough, a theory argued by Grigory Isserson, who instead believed that to achieve the result hoped for, the goal should be to penetrate over a hundred kilometers. It was only by reaching that depth that the attack could push through the first area of enemy defenses, at least according to Isserson. This was not a simple thing to do, though, especially when working with a primarily infantry-based army. It would become easier once it was possible to plan for more mobile units, either with armored vehicles or just with motorized infantry. The work done at the academy confirmed the concept of having two echelons of troops. The first would be thrown against the enemy defenses to breach the forward defenses, while the mobile second echelon then carried the attack forward. To facilitate the concentration of resources for these attacks, there were also some writings and studies done on defensive fortifications, but these were always framed as a way to facilitate the offensive operations, with Isserson saying, quote, Tukhachevsky attached great importance to fortified zones established on the frontier. As he saw it, fortified zones would be seen as a shield, providing protection from enemy attack, but also concealing the concentration of the leading armies. End quote. During the discussion and exercises of the first years of the 1930s, one of the key features of the discussions were tanks. But these did not exist in any real number in the Soviet Union during these years. These were the first years of the first five-year plan, when the ability of the Soviet Union to manufacture tanks was still being built. The demands of deep battle would influence how Soviet tanks were built as well, with Tukhachevsky saying, quote, The setting up for a deep battle, that is the simultaneous disruption of the enemy's tactical layout over its entire depth, requires two things of tanks. On the one hand, they must help the infantry forward and accompany it, on the other, they must penetrate into the enemy's rear, both to disorganize him and to isolate his main forces from the reserves at his disposal. End quote. But they would also have to be concerned with the efforts of other armies to, who were also in the process of mechanizing. There would be enemy tanks that would be encountered along the way. So he would continue, quote, It is likewise of great importance to estimate the extent of future mechanization in the armies of potential enemies. It is one thing to take on the enemy's infantry and cavalry with our tanks, 
quite another to give battle to his tanks. End quote. To try and approach these unique problems, specific choices had to be made about tank armament. Again, another quote. For conflict with armies which had mechanized formations, our mechanized formations must be equipped not only with armored personnel carriers and engineers and other specialist tanks, but with gun tanks, despite the fact that this is an unnecessary luxury for combat with infantry forces. End quote. This is an important insight because a lot of nations would go to war in 1939 with tanks that had just machine guns on them, right? These big gun tanks, specifically designed for anti-tank operations, would have growing importance during the war. It would be the only thing you really see after a certain point in the conflict. These Soviet theories and the Soviet work towards making them a reality were not secret and foreign military attaches would have a good idea about what the Soviets were writing about, thinking about, and would be able to provide some analysis of the challenges that they were facing. This means you can find high-level summaries, like this one from the United States War Department from 1934. Quote, The present combat principles of the Soviets are based on mass employment of armored forces, the so-called deep tactics and annihilating operations, which they count on yielding better results in the combat methods of the World War. End quote. And you can also find far more in-depth analysis, like this one from Major George Arneman, the military attaché in Riga in 1932. Quote, the problem of motorization and mechanization is now brought up for urgent discussion in all armies, but it is still unsolved in a definite manner. This effort also refers to the Red Army, where the fundamental problem of modern warfare, as it is called, remains likewise in the stage of discussion and experiments. Under the above-mentioned conditions, it's natural that official doctrine, i.e. one based on regulations, is still lacking for the motorized and mechanized units. The Red Army combat regulations in 1927 do not deal with this problem at all. The field regulations published in 1929 mention motorized units, but restrict themselves mainly in individual indications of how protection should be formed against them. There remain the semi-official military literature, first of all the military press in whose columns this question is a constant object of discussion. End quote. That does a pretty good job of discussing the state of mechanization, of motorization, and the challenges that the Red Army was having in turning them into detailed, actionable plans that, you know, worked consistently. The 1936 regulations would be the final set of regulations published before the purges, and they would sort of represent the final evolution of deep battle as it existed at the time. These regulations would include details like force breakdowns, with two-thirds of the total force being dedicated to the attack itself, while one-third would be set aside as holding groups, while one-ninth would be dedicated to a reserve. The holding groups would be tasked with protecting the main advance by tying down enemy forces that might be able to move against the primary attack. Meanwhile, the main attack would be organized to facilitate an encounter battle. Quote, with an encounter battle in prospect, the laying down of the order of march assumes overriding importance. In principle, the order of march should be based on specific planned maneuver. On the other hand, it should be flexible enough to allow for regrouping on the move in response to newly received intelligence information. If an encounter battle is anticipated, the bulk of the engineers in the column should be located to the advanced guard. 
The task of the engineer in an encounter battle is to keep the columns moving. End quote. It would also make clear that it was important to launch the attack and carry it forward as quickly as possible, regardless of whether or not exact information was known about the enemy's dispositions and locations. Quote, In launching an encounter battle, nobody must wait for the situation to become completely clear. Information from long-range reconnaissance will never be exhaustive and is soon outdated when the enemy is mobile. End quote. This tied back to the earlier concept of once the attack was launched, delay should be avoided at all costs. While the 1936 regulations represent almost a decade of Soviet military theory being put into practice, the purges of 1937 and 1938 would allow for a large change in another direction. Many of the men who had been at the bleeding edge of deep battle theory and writings were close with Tukhachevsky and were therefore primary purge targets. The changes that the Red Army would go through in 1937 until the start of the war were led by men like Voroshilov, who had never believed in the deep battle concept that the Red Army was pursuing. He would be a lead critic of the idea of taking Soviet armored assets and concentrating them into large shock armies, instead advocating for an approach where armored strength within the Red Army was distributed among units rather than concentrated. This was not an unknown idea. And the two sides of the armor concentration argument, whether they wanted the tanks concentrated into armored divisions and corps, or they wanted the tanks dispersed out into regiments and brigades, these were conversations that would occur in almost every major military in the world in the 1930s. The removal of Tukhachevsky and his supporters in 1937 would provide an opening for the armor distributionists to have greater influence on planning and organization within the Soviet Union, though, and they would sort of win that argument, at least for a while. But as I mentioned earlier, the Red Army was going to have challenges even before the purges, and many of these challenges were around expansion and training. In the years after the Civil War, the structure of the Red Army was a mix of regular army units and then territorial forces, which were maintained at a much lower readiness and training level. By 1935, the territorial system had been abolished and the territorial units themselves had been transitioned into regular forces. This had required them to be expanded and their officer components to be bulked up. During most of the interwar period, these formations had been manned by men between the ages of 21 and 30, all of which were obligated to serve some period of time in the Red Army. However, for most of the 1920s and 30s, there were a whole list of exemptions that could be applied for, and many conscripts were able to obtain those exemptions. But this started to change in the mid-1930s, when efforts began to be put in place to expand the Red Army, with the easiest way to do so being to stop granting so many exceptions. Along with this, the conscription age was reduced from 21 to 19. This brought more men into the Red Army, which were used to create a large number of new but not fully manned divisions. The plan was to then add large number of reserve troops into each division to bring them up to full strength at the start of a conflict. But in many of these divisions, officers were commanding units above their rank and realistic experience level due to there not being enough officers, and this was before the purges. This often meant officers were sent to units with less training or little training, which limited their ability to train their units because they simply did not know themselves how to do things. The core problem was one of recruitment. There just were not enough officer candidates entering officer training which was a combination of entry requirements and the lower literacy rate in the Soviet Union. 
Being literate was an important part of functioning as an officer in the army, and unfortunately for the Red Army, millions of Russians simply could not write or read due to lack of education. Then from 1938 to 1941, the Soviet military would expand by almost 3 million soldiers, almost tripling in size. This turned the officer shortage into a much greater problem, and it would take years for it to be solved. The challenges faced by the Red Army would be on full display during some of the early war campaigns that they would participate in. In Poland, the Soviet invasion would encounter almost no resistance, and so few problems were experienced. It was more of a victory march, a victory parade, than, than a war. But then the Winter War happened, which will be covered in, on this podcast starting in just three episodes. But in summary, the Red Army would eventually be victorious over the fence, but the campaign would be a series of mistakes by the Red Army at all levels of command. This would result in a much higher rate of casualties and a much longer campaign. Then, in an attempt to absorb the lessons of the fighting in Poland, the Red Army would put way too much focus on fixing the problems they experienced during that fighting, particularly around offensive actions against small, highly motivated enemies occupying prepared defenses, a scenario that would not be the primary method of fighting for the Red Army for much of the Second World War. So just to summarize here at the end of this episode, the Red Army would massively expand in the years before the war. They did not have the officer numbers or the officer pipeline to fill out their new units. They exacerbated this problem with the purges and the removal of tens of thousands of officers. At the same time, they were having issues getting their military theories of deep battle to function in exercises. And then after the purges started, they started to pursue a different path altogether a path they were still largely trying to solidify by the time that the Red Army was called into action against Poland, and then Finland, and eventually Germany. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode, which will cover the Soviet Air Force and the Soviet Navy.